Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, and we're looking this morning at the first 12 verses of this passage. Tough word prayer. Let's pray. Father, this morning I do thank you for the opportunity to come uh, and worship you, to listen to your word. I pray that you would uh, bless us with hearing, uh, that we may understand the word of God, and that we may again um, apply it to ourselves and practice it every single day of our lives. And I just I pray this this morning in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so chapter 12 we'll be looking at. Now, last time in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus exposed unbelief in a very powerful way, and he did it to the high-ruling political religious body of Israel. And we learned that uh, in a very practical way, that a person who remains in unbelief will not submit to Jesus' authority. A person who remains in unbelief will uh, not be honest with the facts Also, a person who remains in unbelief exists in the realm of uncertainty and uh, also in the the fear, instead of of God, of people. Uh, And, of course, belief uh, leads to, as its own solution, uh, a getting rid of God, a uh, killing of God. I don't know why that's happening. Um, But, uh, nonetheless, uh, it is something that always takes place when... Um, what's that? Use this one. All right. So, um, in saying all that, in Mark chapter twelve and verse twelve, which we're, we'll, I'll, I'll, where I will conclude this morning, it says simply this: and they were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them, and so they left him and went away. So the solution really for unbelief is just to rid the universe of God. And that's what a sinful heart does. That's what unbelief does. Now, in the beginning of Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, we, we were introduced to different groups of people such as the insider group and the outsider group. Uh, The scribes, uh, those were the teachers of the law, they were already documented in the uh, Gospel of Mark as official opponents to Jesus. In other words, they were critics of about everything Jesus ever said and did. And, And at the end of Jesus' ministry, remember we're on the last seven days, where it's still Tuesday, of the Passion Week in this portion of Scripture. And um, so the at the end of Jesus' ministry, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, also the a whole ruling body of Israel are still outsiders. They have not believed. They are actually digging themselves against Jesus. And then we met the insider group. And the insider group were those characterized by 
people who sit at the feet of Jesus and learn what the Word of God says, right? In Mark chapter 3, it says, a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about those who were sitting around him, he says, behold, my mother and my brothers. And then he concluded, it said, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, of course, anyone who does the word of God obeys God, obeys the message that God brings, especially that message of salvation. One theologian rightly concluded that these words were not a repudiation by Jesus of his mother and brothers. Instead, they are a profound teaching about union with Christ, that Jesus declared that those who believe in him and do God's will have a relationship with him that is closer than blood relationships between parents and children and, of course, uh, and siblings. So in the insider group responds to Jesus and his ministry and is shown to sit at Jesus' feet as his disciples. They were doing the will of God, and they were treated favorably as Jesus' true family. So here's the point in saying that, that if you want to be considered an insider, you have to be spiritually related to Jesus, and that entrance into the kingdom of God is gained by doing the will of God. Now, how does such obedience begin? Well, it's already been established in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus said, listen, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the Gospel. So, those two things are what brings someone into a relationship with God in which they can enter the kingdom of God. They repent from their sin especially the sin of unbelief, and they turn to someone. And of course, the someone they turn to is God's only solution for our sin problem, and that is Jesus Christ himself. So that means that believing the gospel means to obey the message concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is God, the Son of God, that he is God's own way of salvation, that God sent Jesus to the cross, that God put all our sin on him and punished them in him. See, that's what we're to believe. And the question should always be, have you believed that? Have you trusted in what God said to make yourself right with him? Have you trusted in the gospel, repented and believed? So that means that the in crowd cannot waffle on these imperatives of entry into the kingdom of God. Once you enter, you will always be the group that is sitting around Jesus, learning from him, worshiping him, growing in love for God and others. That will take place the rest of your Christian life. So now, with that said, we come to chapter 12. 
And I want you to notice it says in chapter 12, verse number 1, and he began to speak to them in parables. Now, up until this point, in the beginning of Mark, there was a parable. And now, towards the end of Mark, we have another parable. And so, this means that Jesus once again calls his critics out and exposes them for their hard-heartedness and for their unbelief. Now, after such a display of unbelief that we saw last week and their hard-heartedness toward Jesus, once again, Jesus changes his teaching method and begins to speak to them in parables. Now, if you forgot this, let me remind you that parables mean uh, it means a comparison or an analogy. A couple of other things about parables. First, they are connected with this central message that God has begun to assert his kingly power against evil and the promise time of salvation has come to the world because Jesus came into the world. A second thing about parables is that they are not meant to be fully obvious or transparent. They're actually hiding something. They're hiding something for, from, for those people who don't believe, who don't want to believe. And so Jesus begins to use this particular method. And of course, it requires, a parable requires the hearer or the reader to use some effort to get the point. And then it provokes the hearer or the reader to respond to the message, either in repentance or in rejection. There's no middle ground. You either have to be on one side or the other. Either you repent and believe or you reject outright. That's why parables were were spoken by Jesus, so people would really not get the point unless they really wanted to get the point. So they are not simply stories illustrating general moral truths like many people uh, say about parables. They are not. So Jesus speaks in parables to those outside. So a parable actually becomes a severe warning. Don't forget, Jesus has been uh, up for three years preaching and doing ministry and doing miracles and showing who he was and preaching the gospel. So they had plenty of information. They had plenty of time to repent and believe. So Jesus is warning the outsiders, but Jesus is also warning his disciples, those who are inside, of the kind of hard-heartedness that shuts out the flow of plain truth to the heart. See, what distinguishes the disciple from the outsider is that they remain under the influence of Jesus to change their hearts. So for the rest of your life and my life as believers is that we are under the influence of Jesus to change our hearts, to make us more like Christ, to make us holy. That's going to take place till God takes us out of here. And we're going to want that to happen. We're not going to be kicking against it. We're going to want it to happen. So the story we're going to look at this morning in Scripture is about a man who planted a vineyard. This parable was a match, actually, to a parable found in 
Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. I'd like you to turn there real, real quick because really this would all, this parable would be in the mind of the people, especially of the leadership. Now, if you notice in chapter 5 of Isaiah, in verse number 1, I'm not going to read the whole uh, section, but in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. All right, in other words, that God is referring to the nation of Israel as his vineyard, all right? And it describes in there that God planted the vineyard, he set the vineyard up, and of course, if you plant vines and you want them to produce, they say that uh, grapevines don't produce any fruit for five years, all right? But after five years, if you get no fruit, then you realize something's wrong. So the Lord says, I planted my vineyard, which is the nation of Israel, I've, I gave them everything they needed. And then if you notice in Isaiah chapter 5 or 7, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice. In other words, he looked for fruit. But behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness. But behold, a cry of distress. So in other words, that Israel was not producing fruit. And he called the prophet Isaiah to show them that. So now this is, is the match to the, the parable that we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark. So found embedded, let's turn back to Mark, found embedded in this parable in the Gospel of Mark is the awe-inspiring aspects of the divine character of God, such as the loving-kindness of God, the long-suffering of God, the patience of God, the grace of God, and then also the judgment of God, all found in this section of Scripture, also there for us to learn who God is and how God responds to his people and also to those who lead his people. And so, in thinking of that, it's very beneficial for us this morning to learn the characteristics of God and how he does deal with his people and with those who lead. And so, there's really three characteristics of God that come to the surface in this passage of Scripture. And the first one is this. It's God, of course, dealing with his vineyard, but also dealing with those who are, are the leaders or the teachers in that vineyard. So if the vineyard is the nation of Israel, then the teachers are the leadership, right? The scribes, the chief priests, and the, and the Pharisees will be the ones who he's addressing. But he's also addressing, remember, those who are of all, also his children because he's teaching them about who he is. All right, so here's the first thing that we see about the character of God. That's, the first one is this, that God's, God's long-suffering kindness, I'm calling it, toward resistant sinners. All right, so now let's look at verse number 1 through 5, and I just want to say this before we, we look at that, that God's long-suffering 
is really a, a restraint placed on his own will. God is holding himself back for something. He's keeping himself at bay until something takes place. The Hebrew word actually for divine long-suffering is rendered in Scripture slow to anger. It says like this in Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He's He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Right? So that means that there's going to come a time where God's long-suffering, his slow anger is going to stop. In other words, God's long-suffering for things to take place, to happen. Now, That means that his long-suffering is his power to restrain himself. And thank the Lord that he bears long with us. Right? And we are not like the Lord when it comes to bearing long with people. Especially when people are hard-hearted and stubborn and will not listen. Because that's who he's addressing. It's a good reminder that we shouldn't be that way. We should have a very moldable, shapeable heart so God can speak to us. Our ears should always be open to what the Lord has to say. All right, now, let's look at the parable, all right? We're going to see this. The parable described in verse number one, all right? And it says, and he began to speak to them. Well, it says that, and he began to speak to them in a parable, and this is was was the parable. And he, uh, a man planted a vineyard, and put a wall around it, and dug a vat under the wine press, and built a tower. All right. So now I'm going to identify the characters in this parable. The char- the man is God the Father. That's the first character, right? Now. In verse number one, you see everything that is needed to complete a vineyard so you can bear a crop, bear fruit, is supplied. The vine plants are supplied. The vine plants represent the nation of Israel. All right? They are planted in order to yield fruit, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit that God wants to produce in them so they can be a testimony to the nations. And then it says the Lord provided fences. All right? That means he built Around the vineyard offense, of course, separating Israel from the other nations. All right. He, what did he give Israel that he didn't give the other nations? He gave them the law. He gave them the Psalms. He gave them the prophets. He gave them the priesthood. He gave them the tabernacle. He gave them the sacrificial system. They were unlike all the other nations of the world. They were different. And what fenced them off from the other nations was all those things. Right. And because they were different. They were different for one reason, so they can display the difference of who God was to compare to their gods. That's what they were supposed to do. Of course, there was a wine press there, and of course, a wine press was to produce fruit, right? So God expected the fruits of repentance. He expected the fruit of increased faith. He expected the fruit of obedience, and then it says in verse 1 to 1, he built, they built a tower. Now, a tower was used for two things, to store the wine and then also 
to be a watchtower so you can protect the field. And the watchmen were put in place so the crop could be always protected. So in other words, God supplied everything for the leaders and the people of God to grow and to bear fruit. Now, verse number one, it also teaches us this. It says at the end of the verse, and rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey. So that means God the Father supplied everything, right? And what he did is when the owner had made every conceivable provision for the safety and the the prosperity of the vineyard, he leased it to some vine growers while he was absent. See, one, once things were in place, God is described as, as going away or going abroad. While he was gone, he entrusted his vineyard, that is his people, right, entirely to the care of the leaders of Israel. That's what he did. All right, so the identity of the second group in our parable is the cultivators of the vineyard are the rulers of Israel. So we have God the Father, we have the rulers of Israel. So that means that God brought Israel from Egypt to Canaan, planted it, fenced it, equipped it right there, and placed it under spiritual rulers whose office or offices were to be continuous. They were to continually teach the word of God and show who God was. And then we see that there's the vine growers agreement, verse number two of our text, it says, at harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. In other words, a vine grower, a vineyard is planted uh, for the purpose of yielding fruit, and the agreement was between the owner, God the Father, and the vine growers, the rulers of Israel, was that they should, the father should receive a certain portion of the crop, right? He's going to allow the uh, leaders to have a portion, but because he's the owner, that the owner sent a servant to collect what was his due. That was a common practice, all right? That was, it's reasonable, right? You have somebody working your property, your ground, you expect some of the fruit. And so he sends his servant, right? Now, here's the first servant he sends. So that means the vine growers, which is the nation of Israel, the uh, the leaders of the nation of Israel, what do they do with the servant? What do they do? How do they act towards the father's servant that he sends to them? Well, if you look in verse number two, it says that harvest time he sent a slave to the vine growers. Now, let me just say this. Group number three would be, who are the servants? The servants sent by the father to the leadership or the rulers of Israel are the prophets. So the servants are the prophets. All right? And so, matter of fact, Amos tells us, surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to the servants, to his servants, the prophets. So right in scripture, we see that it's very clear 
that God sent these servants to collect on his, uh, the fruit of the vineyard, and his servants were the prophets. Now, if you think back for a moment, Israel's actions towards uh, the prophets has been very despicable in Scripture. If you have been reading through the Bible, you'll find out that it has been horribly despicable. In fact, it look, look at chapter 12 of Mark and verse number 3. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So this is how the rulers of the nation, the people who are supposed to cultivate the vineyard, this is how they're treating God the Father's prophets. Now, just to bring you up to speed, I'm just going to take maybe one prophet as an example. And one of them is Jeremiah. Jeremiah, if you read through Jeremiah, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He was not always weeping because of their treatment. He was weeping because the people didn't believe. They were in unbelief. And why don't you take your Bibles real quick and just look at a few passages of scriptures in Jeremiah that relate to how the nation of Israel or how the leadership of Israel treated God's servants. Look at it. Jeremiah chapter 7. And I'll just go, I'll just read three passages from three different sections of Jeremiah. It says in chapter 7, verse number 25, it says, Since the day, Jeremiah 7 25, since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Verse 26, it says, And they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. Now turn over to Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. Jeremiah 20, verse 1 and 2. It says when... Verse 1, when Pashur, the priest, the son of Emir, who was chief officer of the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, Pashur had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in the stocks, all right, and so on and so forth. And then down to verse number 37, or chapter 37, verse number 15. It says, then the officials were angry at Jeremiah, verse 15 of Jeremiah 37, and beat him, and they put him in jail in the house of Jonathan the scribe, which they had made into the prison. Verse 16, for Jeremiah had come into the dungeon, that is the vault cell, and Jeremiah stayed there many days. And then, of course, in Jeremiah chapter 38, what do they do? They throw Jeremiah down a cistern a well, and there was no water, the Bible says, in the cistern, and he sunk down in the mud. See, this is how the nation of Israel treated the prophets. Now, you would, you would think at that point, well, what do you think the, the father's going to do? Maybe we should end it there and take care of these people right off the bat, right? Well, if you turn back to Mark, I want you to notice 
what happens here and which stresses the point of the long-suffering of God towards resistant sinners. Right? The second servant in verse number four, it says this, again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. So from a beating, actually the word for beat here means to fillet. So in other words, he was beat down, beat so badly that it almost like his skin was coming off. So this is very extreme wickedness, and the wickedness is escalating for each one that was sent. Now here's a third servant in verse number 5. And he sent another, Mark chapter 12, verse 5, and that one they killed. So you went from a beating to a beating so badly that his skin was falling off to now, let's just murder the guy and forget the whole thing. It's too difficult to beat the person. Let's just kill him. So it escalated to this point. And you would think maybe, all right, God would be filled up. He would stop it. He would say, okay, that's enough. I don't want my prophets getting beaten anymore. That's not what he does. If you notice in verse number five, the second part of the verse, it says, so with many others, beating some, killing others. Elijah was driven into the wilderness by the monarchy. Isaiah, the prophet, according to tradition, was sawn in two. Zechariah was stoned to death near the altar. John the baptizer, the last Old Testament prophets, was beheaded. That's why when you read Hebrews, you come to chapter 11, what do you read about the, the prophets and the saints that were faithful to God? You read this, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men whom this world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And what does God do? He keeps sending his evangelists. He keeps sending his pastors. He keeps sending his teachers. He keeps sending faithful parents and relatives and friends to be able to speak the truths of the gospel to those who have not yet heard. He continues to do that. To me, that is just amazing about the long-suffering of God. But that brings me to my, the second characteristic of God, dealing with his people and the leadership of Israel. And it's this, God's mercifulness and graciousness is depicted in his final solution. Look what it says in verse 6 of chapter 12. Now, I want to mention this, that remember, long-suffering and the patience of God towards Israel's religious rulers is put on display by God's mercy. And what's God's mercy again? God's mercy is not giving us what we deserve. It's withholding back what we actually deserve. If they were brought into court at this point, if any was, anyone was brought to the point and found guilty, they would be judged. 
So what does God do? He sends one prophet after another, even though the treatment of his prophets that they received was nothing but bloody beatings and sometimes actual killings. The Gospel of Matthew says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. So this is the characteristic of the nation. And you would think again, God would say, that's enough. I'm not sending anyone else to you. But God's patience and his incomprehensible love and his unfathomable grace exceed all understandable boundaries. So this is what the father does. This is what the owner of the vineyard does. The owner of the vineyard has one son. And he says, I'll send him. And notice what it says in verse number six. He had one more to send. A beloved son. He sent them last of all to them. Saying, they will respect my son. See, the son not only represented the father's legal claim on the vineyard, but also his loving kindness and his compassion and his mercy to those who are tending the vineyard. You can never say that God doesn't give people chances. God gives people chances one after another, after another, after another, after another, after another, after another. Because that's who he is. In other words, you would think the vine grower should have enough respect not to treat his son as a slave, but to treat his son with certain level of restraint. But I want to remind you that unbelief leads to, as its solution, getting rid of the competition, whatever the means possible, that the rulers are steeped in unbelief, hard-heartedness, blindedness, unfruitfulness, and they're dead at the roots. Is It's one of those, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree scenarios. So how do they respond to the sun? How do they respond to the son? With respect? Well, look at verse number 7 and 8. How do they respond to the heir? It says, but those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. They threw him out. Of course, uh, we know Remember that Jesus was killed outside the gate, right? He was taken outside of Jerusalem to the outside to suffer outside the camp. And, oh, by the way, you probably guessed it, that the identity of this fourth character in the parable is the the only son of the owner of the vineyard is Jesus Christ. He's the only son. See, they... Killed Jesus, 
because they feared the loss of their position as leaders. The vine growers killed the owner's son, the heir, and threw him outside the vineyard. Now, did they think the owner was too far away to do anything? I believe that people do think that God is so transcendent That is that he's so far away and uninvolved that they can do acts against God and get away with it. People every day live with that thought on their mind because they have a truly a wrong view of God and what he has done. But that is the thought. That God's not really active in the world. He's not really doing things in the world. I don't see him anywhere. And so therefore, I'm going to live the way I want. And I'm going to hope at the end things go favorably for me. But see, if humanity can dispense with God, or even kill God, then humanity becomes God. And see, this is the, the, the mission of Satan behind the scenes. To rid the world of truth. To rid the world of God. A true understanding of God. Now, Of course, if somebody thinks they can rid the world of God, they need to think again how wrong they are. And and why would they be wrong? Well, because of what comes next. Because of God's third characteristic in dealing with sinful, unrepentant, unbelieving people. And it's this. God's severity is seen in the certainty of judgment. Now, I want you to notice in verse number 9 of chapter 12, it says, now, there's a question that's posed, and then there's an answer that's given. And notice what it says in the parable. It says this, in verse number 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Now, of course, remember the leadership of Israel is listening. His inside group is listening. The crowd is all around Jesus. uh, And... Who responds to the question is very interesting. Well, the nation of Israel doesn't respond to the question. The Jewish leadership doesn't respond to the question. The crowd responds to the question. All right? And, of course, the question is, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Right? Well, the answer is actually supplied by the people. Verse number 9, it says, and he will come and destroy the vine growers, and will give the vine the vineyard to others. All right? So that's what the Lord will do. In other words, his, his judgment will be certain at the time he decides to lower the boom, that God may bear long with disobedience and rebellion and injustice, but in the end, God will act. He will vindicate his name. And when he does act, no one can resist when God comes in judgment. No one could stand up against his judgment. That the wrath of God is really the eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is, it is moving, it's the moving cause of, of the just sentence of God that is passed upon unbelievers or evildoers. And so we see 
that in this passage of Scripture, there are certain things that this judgment will bring that we need to avoid. And we need to avoid at least at least three things. And the first thing we need to avoid is to avoid all unbelief as God's people. But the second thing we need to avoid is ignorance. Because the judgment is going to be upon unbelief. The judgment is going to be upon ignorance. If you notice in verse number 10, it says this. It says, have you not even read this scripture? Jesus presses upon the Jewish leadership their ignorance of scripture. By quoting to them Psalm 18, verse 22 and 23, right? The problem has always been that they have not been reading the scripture and listening to God's spokesman, spokesman, the prophets. They have been erecting fences around the truth of God's word, making it difficult to get to what God is actually saying. See, he begins to quote this psalm, and notice what it says in verse number 10. The stone which the builders rejected This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. See, in other words, historically, this psalm was composed to express the joy of the the people after the Babylonian captivity, either on the occasion of laying the cornerstone of the new temple or on the occasion of the dedication of the complete structure. So see, the sin to avoid for his insider group is avoid the sin of being ignorant of God's word. Do not be caught in the trap where you are ignorant about what God requires of you. But then there is the ultimate thing that we need to avoid and all need to avoid, and that's the judgment upon the rejection of the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. And so if you notice in verse 10 and in verse number 11, it says this, that in this passage of scripture, that Jesus was the son sent by the owner of the vineyard, the father, and rejected by the vine growers, the rulers of Israel. So again, the identity of the characters of the parable, the owner of the vineyards, God the Father, the cultivators of the vineyard, the rulers of Israel, the servants sent by the Father are the prophets, and the only son of the owner of the vineyard is Jesus Christ. And the only way that you avoid rejection is by repentance and faith in Christ alone. They rejected, it says, the stone which the builders rejected. Now the builders would be those who would uh, be the leaders of Israel who were given the task to build the nation so the nation would produce fruit. But the very word rejected here is the word that means to actually reject after scrutiny or to reject after full examination. So in other words, they looked at Jesus for three years. And they scrutinized him, his teaching, his miracles, his interaction with people, everything they could. And they gave him a full examination and they declared him, Jesus, 
useless and unfit for the building. See, that is ultimate rejection. That is the rejection that is, is the greatest sin anybody can commit in this world is to outright reject Jesus Christ and say, he won't be my savior. He hasn't proved to me anything. See, Jesus himself is the rejected stone here. He now has become, in God's good purposes, the chief cornerstone of the building of this new temple. In other words, the chief cornerstone, the, the, the cornerstone was a, a, a stone that was actually at the corner of the building that governed every angle of the foundation in the building itself. That if the cornerstone was bad, if it was not correct, the whole foundation is compromised and the whole building is compromised and it all comes tumbling down. And so they rejected Christ after a complete and full evaluation. But if you notice, the passage of Scripture says something else. It says, by way of a question, this came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It wasn't marvelous in their eyes. But all those who believe in Jesus Christ, it will be marvelous in their eyes. It will be the wonder of their whole life that all the godly who see this strange way God works can only bow their heads in awe and reverence to the great plan of God. Because don't forget, the rejection of the Jewish leadership was the fruitfulness of the Gentiles. That the gospel went from Israel to the Gentiles, right? And we could not be saved if this didn't happen. You got that, right? We would not be sitting here if this didn't happen. There would be no church if this didn't happen. And so it happened. And so we we see at the end, if someone is unmoved by the truth, by the gospel, then the only thing in the character of God that can be done is judgment will be inevitable. Someone cannot be rescued if they outright reject Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is all established within the character of God. And so this brings me to verse number 12, which I started with and end with. It says this, and they were seeking to seize him. To lay their hands on him, in other words. And yet they feared the people. And they understood that he spoke the parable against them. They were getting it. This guy's talking about us. We're the ones who are guilty. But did that change them? Did that move them? Did that bring them to repentance and faith? No. It says there at the end, so they left him and they went away. What did they leave him to do? Actually, the word, one of the Greek words means they were conniving. They were conniving. They were planning. They're just gathering information to kill him. That's where it all leads. So see, the prophets were beaten and killed. And the last messenger, remember, Jesus is the last messenger. 
There's no other messengers. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 tell us that. This, this is the final revelation of God, Jesus Christ. If you reject the last servant that God the Father sends into the world for the salvation of humanity, for your salvation, if you reject him, there is no other servants. There is no other message. The only thing is left is God's wrath and judgment. That's it. That's why hell is really a place where the character of God's wrath and judgment is, and that is it. There's no mercy. There is no grace. There's no compassion. There's no long-suffering. There's nothing there except God's wrath. So Jesus had just called out the Jewish hierarchy, pointing out their sin in rejecting one after another of the prophets, culminating in the murder of the Messiah himself, therefore predicting their fate. The nation was to share the fate of the rulers. However, in this passage of Scripture, it is Jesus and the people against the ruling body of Israel that God's rejection of the ruling body of Israel was the fruitfulness of the Gentiles. And, of course, there is yet to come a glad gathering in of Israel in the end time. But right now, there is not. They're in the land. They are dead in the land spiritually. They are secular, uh, but they're there. But someday God's going to send his spirit. They're going to come alive, and they're going to be saved. So, listen, when God sends his messengers to tell us what he requires, what to do, and how to be rescued, we have to listen. Right When God sends Jesus to rescue us from sin's condemnation and judgment, we have to believe and obey that. So are you an insider today who continually sits at the feet of Jesus and learns from him because you repented and trusted him for salvation? And God has been long-suffering with you and I. He's granted us mercy and graciousness, have we thanked him for it? Do we live our life every day with that on our mind? I just want to end with this. And, and I, I don't think anything of, of, a, of a story or a earthly parable can compare to what Scripture tells us. But, you know, and you probably, you may have even heard this before, but I, I thought it was it, it was kind of like funny that I was thinking about it. It was about a very religious man who was once caught in the rising floodwaters. He climbed onto the roof of his house and trusted God to rescue him. A neighbor came by in a canoe and said, hey, the waters will soon be above the house. Hope, uh, hop in and, and we will uh, paddle to safety. And he said, no thanks. Uh, I, I prayed to God and I'm sure he'll save short time later, uh, the police came in a boat. The waters will soon be above your house. Hop in and we'll take you to safety. No thanks, the man replied. Um, I pray to God and I'm sure that'll save you. A little time later, a rescue service helicopter hovered overhead, let down a rope ladder and said, 
The waters will soon be above your house. Climb the ladder and we'll fly to safety. No thanks, the man replied. I prayed to God, and I'm sure that he'll save me. All this time, the floodwaters continued to rise until soon it reached the, above the roof of the house, and the, this particular man was drowned. When he arrived in heaven, he demanded an audience with God. Ushered into God's throne room, he says, Lord, why am I here in heaven? I pray to you to save me. I trust you to save me from that flood. Yes, Jesus replied. The Lord replied, I sent you a canoe, a boat, and a helicopter, and you never got in. See, God sent us the prophets, the word of God, Jesus Christ. And if people don't get in that boat, they're doomed for judgment. And anyway, most likely this man never made it to heaven because he refused God's means of rescue. But I think that that kind of thinking is very prevalent. People think they're safe for their own reasons, and they're not safe. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning, again, Lord, for the truth of Scripture, for the incredible clarity of what you are doing. But I thank you, Lord, most of all this morning about your character, about your loving kindness toward us and your long-suffering, especially, Lord, when we were resistant sinners and we didn't want to believe for whatever reason. But Lord, you didn't listen to that. You kept sending the message. You kept drawing us to the truth of Scripture. And finally, one day, Lord, you showed us the truth. And you granted us faith and repentance, and we believed. And Lord, so that means your mercy and your grace led us to the truth. Led us to the one solution for our sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, even today, all those who believe in you are rescued from your judgment. But Lord, still judgment causes fear. Because Lord, what you say will come to pass. Because of your character, you cannot let sin go unpunished. Even though you are the God of compassion and mercy and long-suffering, someday, Lord, those are going to run out. And you're going to come back again. And you're going to institute the rest of your plan and the earth, but you're going to take your church from here. And that time, Lord, we know the mystery of iniquity will explode upon the world, that the Antichrist will take power and deceive the whole world to believe that he's the Christ. And even Israel will believe that. But Lord, someday we thank you, Lord, that Israel's reject, rejection is our benefit. Someday you'll graft them in again, and they'll be saved in their land. And I pray, Lord, for that time, and I pray for us, Lord, that we would continue to grow in a very, with a very thankful heart about, because, Lord, you have rescued us from your judgment. And I pray, Lord, that because of that, we would live for you with a, with a life that we can offer to you that's filled with the fruit of the Spirit. 
that's filled with things that give you joy. And Lord, I pray that wherever we may go, that we may be the mouthpiece to tell other people about how they may be right with God. Holy Spirit, I pray if we have quenched you or grieved you in any way, that you'd forgive us. But make us people who can be usable vessels in your hand during these days. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. Mm-hmm.